Hello and welcome to Emmanuel, a podcast designed to help enhance your study of the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All right, welcome to this week's podcast. The content is 2 Nephi's chapter chapter 3 through 5. Um, so I want to start in chapter 3 um, when Lehi is speaking to Joseph and he says, I speak unto you, Joseph, my last born, thou wast born in the wilderness of mine afflictions. Yea, in the days of my greatest sorrow did thy mother bear thee. Um, we've talked about, you know, over the last several weeks, how we can still have joyful and wonderful experiences, even in challenging circumstances. That's certainly a lesson, certainly a lesson that we can glean here from this verse. Um, but I would like to just kind of, um, think about this from a different perspective. Uh, this verse is kind of proof of Lehi's faithfulness and Sariah's faithfulness, that they were willing to faithfully bear children, even in these very difficult uh, circumstances. And, you know, we can see the blessings that came from them being willing to exercise that faith, and they ended up uh, getting their promised land. And I think a lot of times we focus on the challenges of having children, for example, I know people ask my wife and I all the time about this because we have nine kids, uh, and certainly there are challenges, but if we flip that question a little bit and, and shift our paradigm and think about it from this perspective, you know, what would happen if I didn't make that choice? You know, so looking at Lehi and Sariah, what would have happened if they wouldn't have had Jacob and Joseph? Um, you know, they became prophets that influenced the entire Nephite nation. You know, and I look at it in my own family from my perspective. I look at all my kids and I think to myself, well, which one would I give up? Um, so I think looking at it from the eternal perspective and recognizing the Lord sees the end from the beginning and being willing to act in faith, have children, um, or, you know, any equivalent of that, just acting in faith on what the Lord has invited us to do and just recognizing that he sees the end from the beginning and that we can trust him. Uh, and really, I would rather ask myself the question up front, what if I don't do this? What if I don't act in faith? And just consider the blessings that come from acting in faith. I, look, again, look at each one of my children and the joy that each one of them brings. And certainly there's challenges that come along with that, but just the blessing of acting in faith. So just invite you to consider that and think about those situations from an eternal perspective. All right, so um, Lehi goes on to, to talk to Joseph and um, points out that he's a descendant of Joseph that was carried into Egypt and how great the covenants are that were made to Joseph. And in the end of verse 5, he talks about a, a prophecy that Joseph in Egypt saw, and apparently they must have had some sort of access to this, maybe in the plates that Nephi obtained from Laban. Not positive, but that would be my guess, and based on things we saw earlier in the text. But I love the, the last part of chapter of verse 5. The Messiah should be made manifest unto them in the latter days in the spirit of power, unto the bringing of them out of darkness unto light, yea, out of hidden darkness and, cap, and out of captivity unto freedom. And this has reference back to um, chapter 2, 
where Lehi taught about choosing Christ is choosing liberty uh, versus choosing the opposite leads to captivity. And you think about, if you think about your own life and how as Jesus Christ is made manifest to you, as you get to know him and you have that relationship with him and um, really come to understand who he is and how he feels about you, that you feel an increased power in your life that brings you out of darkness into light. Um, and that's, I think, a critical thing to think about here is always keeping focused on the Savior and Him bringing us into the light. And this is an, it has an interesting connection with Doctrine and Covenants, section 3, verses 16 through 20, if you were to uh, go into those verses and take a look there. Um, it talks about the purpose of the Book of Mormon coming forth in verse 20, that the Lamanites might come to the knowledge of their fathers, that they might know the promises of the Lord, and that they may believe the gospel and rely upon the merits of Jesus Christ and be glorified through faith in his name, and that through their repentance they might be saved. Amen. So love how the focus is on the Savior and how he brings uh, us out of darkness into the light. And then verses 7 through 11 talk about um, a prophecy really of Joseph Smith. And I think putting yourself in the perspective of Joseph Smith as he's translating, kind of thinking through how this would have influenced you, it would have been very interesting to um, be translating this. And, you know, who knows if it, the revelation or the realization that this was talking about him came right away or when it came. But regardless of when it came, it would have been very interesting to consider. Um, that this choice seer that is talked about, that Lehi talks to Joseph about, is has a reference to Joseph Smith. You know, Brigham Young said, it was decreed in the councils of eternity long before the foundations of the earth were laid that he, Joseph Smith, should be the man in the last dispensation of this world to bring forth the word of God to the people and receive the fullness of the keys and power of the priesthood of the Son of God. The Lord had his eyes upon him and upon his father and upon his father's father and upon their progenitors clear back to Abraham. And from Abraham to the flood, from the flood to Enoch and from Enoch to Adam. He has watched that family and that blood as it has circulated from its fountain to the birth of that man. He, Joseph Smith, was foreordained in eternity to preside over this last dispensation." And Elder Maxwell talks about, you know, examples of truths that show that Joseph Smith could see things, that he's this seer, um, that maybe that he could see things that were probably previously hidden from the world during the time of the apostasy. You know, for example, the revelation about revelations about the extent and expanse of the universe in Moses 1 and Doctrine and Covenants 76. God's central purposes in Moses 1. Um, you know, additional knowledge about us as God's children in Doctrine and Covenants section 93. Uh, revelations about our destiny in section 84. Um, revelations about God's personal involvement with his children, Alma chapter 18, verse 32. Revelations about the expanse of the Savior's atonement, Second Nephi 9, verse 7, Doctrine and Covenants 88, verses 6 through 13. So, we are so blessed to have this seer who um, brought so many things which are, as Lehi said, of great worth unto us. And that he did the Lord's work beside, uh, despite his weaknesses. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about those weaknesses here shortly. But um, 
I wanted to point out in verse 11, this is, um, I mentioned before, I absolutely love the Bible. Um, and so anytime that there's a reference to it in the Book of Mormon, I love to point it out. Verse 11, so Joseph Smith will be raised up and unto him will I give power to bring forth my word unto the seed of thy loins and not to the bringing forth my word only, saith the Lord, but to the convincing them of my word, which shall already shall have already gone forth among them. So the Book of Mormon has the purpose not just to come forth and bring forth truth, but also to convince us of the truths that are already taught in the Bible. So a couple of really good examples, I think, would be, um, and this relates to verse 12, where it talks about, you know, the Bible and the Book of Mormon working together to confound false doctrines, to establish peace, um, like Third Nephi 11, we learn so much about baptism from the Savior's words there. Um, but if we didn't have the Bible, for example, in Romans 6, we wouldn't have this very powerful imagery of the symbolism of baptism. Um, and, you know, the first six verses of Romans 6 are so powerful there. Uh, likewise, Isaiah 53 and Alma 7 are great on their own, but when read together, um, the first five verses in Isaiah 53 and verses 11 through 13 in Alma 7, when you read those together, it really makes a huge difference in your understanding. And so the things that Joseph Smith um, brought forth really convince us of the um, truthfulness of what is already in the Bible. Um, and there's a great story of uh, that LeGrand Richards tells uh, about going to uh, a group of people in Holland, a very uh, big group of businessmen, and sitting down with them and going through the Bible. And what he did was he, um, there's 20 or so of them, and he just would give chapter and verse, you know, restoration doctrines that are taught in the Bible. And he would just give the chapter and verses from the Bible and let the guys read it. And at the end, um, the first person to speak was the daughter of one of the, the foremost men there. And she said, you know, Dad, I've always seen you as person, somebody who has the last word, and yet you haven't been able to say anything. And the dad responded, well, this, there's not really anything I can say. These are things that I've never noticed before, and he's teaching this man, LeGrand Richards, is teaching them to us right out of our own Bible. Um, and I think, suffice it to say, if Elder Richards didn't have the Book of Mormon and the Restoration Doctrines, it wouldn't have been the same conversation. So I love how these, work, these two books work together um, to bring us to the Savior and bring peace and bring clarity to doctrine. All right, <clears throat> verse 13, I said I was going to come back to this idea of the weaknesses of Joseph Smith. Um, so, and this is where it calls it out in verse 13 and out of weakness, he, Joseph Smith shall be made strong. So I want to really hit on this hard because I think we have a problem in the church with trying to expect perfection, um, from prophets and then being concerned when we find that they're not as perfect as we thought. So, Let's look at Joseph, Smith example, Joseph Smith's example of weakness. First of all, if you read all the different accounts of the first vision, the real reason why Joseph Smith went into the grove of trees in the spring of 1820 
was actually, his primary question was not about which church to join. His primary question was about the salvation of his soul and whether he could be forgiven. And so it was obvious that his own personal weaknesses were driving him to that prayer. Um, the Lord gave him more, you know, and, and explained the things about the church and how the, the Lord would work with him to bring forth many things in the restoration. But what drove him to the grove was that desire for forgiveness. Likewise, if you look at the account of when Moroni came and, and where the Book of Mormon came from, this is very powerful when you think about this. Joseph was likewise praying about his soul. Uh, he was concerned because even though he'd had the first vision and he'd been called to the prophet, he didn't feel like he'd lived up to that standard and he felt um, you know, guilty and he felt like he wasn't doing the things that he was supposed to do and was wondering, hey, am I still called? You know, Will God still work with me despite my weaknesses? And I think when we see that, um, sometimes we look at those weaknesses and we're like, oh, well, how could he have been a prophet? Well, to me, that actually strengthens my testimony uh, of prophets because when I see them you know, not being afraid of their weaknesses and talking about their weaknesses open, openly, it humanizes them and also makes me feel okay, like I must be okay because even prophets had some struggles. And we'll get into chapter four where Nephi does this, um, you know, but Paul does it as well in Romans 7 and in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, where he just talks openly about his weaknesses. And so rather than letting our faith falter when we find out that there's weaknesses in those that God calls to lead his church, um, maybe let's look at the aspect of the how their humanity can increase our understanding of the mercy of God and how God calls us despite our inadequacies and our failings. So I uh, love that thought in verse 13. So um, in verse 14, uh, it talks about, you know, he kind of reemphasizes these different promises that came to Joseph. And Lehi says, behold, I am sure of the fulfilling of this promise at the end. And I think that, um, this is just a really quick little um, thing to consider is how sure are we in God fulfilling his promises? Um, do we know like the brother of Jared did that God is a God of truth and he cannot lie? Um, do we trust that those promises will be fulfilled, whether in this life or the life to come, but that they will be fulfilled? I think that's an important concept to just think about as, as we read verses like that, about being sure of God's promises. All right, and then in verse 15, uh, his name shall be called after me, and it shall be after the name of his father. So this is the whole Joseph thing, right? Got to be interesting, this verse in particular. Uh, and he shall be like unto me, for the thing which the Lord shall bring forth by his hand, by the power of the Lord, shall bring my people into salvation. I would assume that the thing that was brought forth is the restoration of the church, the gospel, you know, priesthood, temple work, missionary work, Book of Mormon, like all these different things. Um, you know, you think about all these different things, especially, you know, priesthood ordinances, temple ordinances, um, 
these are things that increase our connection to Jesus Christ and enhance our relationship with him and our ability to receive additional other Bednar calls, you know, ordinances and covenants additive grace. You know, that we receive additional power because of these things to become like Jesus Christ and have him influence our life. So surely the things that Joseph brought forth, that God brought forth through Joseph in the restoration um, were things that truly do bring us to salvation and, and help us to become more like the Savior. All right, I won't um, spend too much more time in chapter 3, just two other quick notes. Uh, one is in verse 24, um, talking about Joseph Smith again, do that thing which is great in the sight of God unto the bringing to pass much restoration. Notice it's not all. It's not the, it's much restoration. And I think it um, harkens to a talk by um, Elder Uchtdorf where he says, the reality, in reality, the restoration is an ongoing process. We are living in it right now. It includes all that God has revealed, all that he does now reveal, and the many great and important things that he will yet reveal. So recognizing that we're still in part of the restoration and to not be surprised when you know, additional knowledge and information comes forward from the leaders of the church. So, um, and, and Elder Uchtdorf's talk is called, Are You Sleeping Through the Restoration? You know, or are we actually paying attention and seeing um, all the miracles that are coming forth? I think particularly under President Nelson with the building of temples, um, how that has accelerated beyond really anything I could have imagined, uh, you know, several years ago. So, um, then the last thing in chapter three is just again, this idea, and I'll mention it again a couple other times today of Nephi as a type of Christ, you know, verse 25, blessed art thou Joseph, behold, thou art little, wherefore hearken unto the words of thy brother Nephi Christ, and it shall be done unto thee even according to the words which I have spoken. Like God's covenants are fulfilled as we hearken to the words of our brother Jesus Christ. All right, let's pick up in chapter four. Um, chapter four, the whole second half of it is called the Psalm of Nephi. That's where we're going to spend most of our time. It's an absolutely incredible passage, and we'll get into some of the the details of it here in just a minute. But um, a couple things that I wanted to point out here in chapter four. Um, as you look through the first 10 verses and just consider that, those verses um, in a similar light as maybe patriarchal blessings and thinking about a couple different concepts. One is God's mercy and how constant he is in his reaching out to his children, even those who have gone off the path and how willing he is to offer mercy and redemption to them. And um, I love looking at it that way. And, and I would also encourage you to just think about this from uh, parent's perspective and the comfort that can come um, as a parent. And even if you have, uh, you're a parent or maybe there's a child who has, uh, as they say, gone wayward, if you will. And there's a, a talk by, or a, an article by Elder Bednar um, about wayward children and the hope that comes there um, in the Leahon, I think it's in like 2012, if you wanted to, to look at that. Um, but it, really reading it from these verses from that perspective, I think can be very helpful. Um, I want to pick it up in verses five and six here. 
Uh, my sons and my daughters, I cannot go down to my grave, save I should leave a blessing upon you. I know that if ye are brought up in the way you should go, you will not depart from it. If ye are cursed, behold, I leave my blessing upon you, that the cursing may be taken from you and answered upon the heads of your parents. Um, this idea of curses, we're going to get into this a little more in chapter 5. But I think we need to understand the, the definition um, afflicted, vexed, tormented, blasted by a curse, devoted to destruction, deserving a curse, um, as a curse, quarrel, curse, thorn. So, uh, in the guide to the scriptures, the cur- a curse is an application of divine law that allows or brings judgments and consequences upon a thing or a person or people. Um, they're a manifestation of God's divine love and justice. They can be invoked directly by God or pronounced by his servants. Sometimes the full reasons for curses are known only to God. I think that's important here. But the I wanted to read that because of what we'll get into in chapter 5, but really what I want to focus on here in verses 5 and 6 is the idea of parents being the, as uh, Elder Collister, Tad Collister said, the prime gospel teachers of their children. And he, Elder Collister tells a story about a young woman, 12 years old, that he met when he was in uh, Beirut, Lebanon. And this young woman was from Romania and there's no real, there was no real like church organization there. They didn't get a tent church or anything. So she came to get baptized. And w- this is when, uh, brother Collister was there. And during the meeting, he was teaching about the plan of salvation. And this young woman would raise her hand frequently and give very astute answers to, um, questions about the plan of salvation. So afterwards, Brother Collister went up to this young girl and said, hey, how do you, I know you don't have any access to church or anything, like there's not an, organ, an organized branch where you live, like how do you know all these things? And she said, my mother taught me. And I think that's a perfect example where we can see that Lehi, despite the fact that some of his children responded differently, that he certainly was the prime gospel teacher for his children. Like he went through every effort that he possibly could to teach his children. And it's a great symbol or or type of how Heavenly Father works with us, that he's constantly trying to reach out, teach us, um, help us, bless us. Uh, And, you know, I know I was blessed to have, you know, my parents really be prime gospel teachers. I always knew that every night we were going to read scriptures together. Um, I always knew that we were going to have family night every week. And um, I certainly haven't been perfect with those, but you know, that's something that I've learned that I've really tried to apply as a parent myself. And, you know, there's definitely those tender moments where you have chances to teach your kids and answer questions and help them understand things. Um, about Heavenly Father and His plan. And it's really such a blessing to be able to do that and to recognize that we are responsible to be those uh, prime gospel teachers, the main ones, main people that are teaching our kids. Um, Okay, so that's the first part. And then verse 11, just really quick again, read this. Nephi is a type of Christ. It's it's very um, interesting to, to read it that way. So... I won't spend too much time on that because I know we've talked about that quite a bit. But uh, in verse 12, Lehi dies. And then uh, in verse 13, 
is this interesting thing. And it came to pass that not many days after his death, Laman and Lemuel and the sons of Ishmael were angry with me because of the admonitions of the Lord. For I, Nephi, was constrained to speak unto them according to his word. So I, we, ha- we haven't talked about this a ton, but I wanted to call out here and just have us consider how do we respond to chastisement? How do we, do we respond in humility or do we respond in pride and anger? And it reminded me of this story I was told in October 2010 General Conference. And it goes like this. One morning, a family gathered to study the scriptures as usual. As they gathered, the father, father felt a negative spirit. Some members of the family did not look very excited to participate. They had family prayer, and as they started to read the scriptures, the father noticed that one of the children did not have her personal set of scriptures with her. He invited her to go to her room and bring her scriptures. She reluctantly did so, and after a period of time that seemed, seemed like an eternity, she returned, sat down, and said, Do we really have to do this now? The father thought to himself that the enemy of all righteousness wanted to create problems so that they would not study the scriptures. The father, trying to stay calm, said, Yes, we have to do this now because this is what the Lord wants us to do. She responded, I don't really want to do this now. The father then lost his patience, raised his voice, and said, This is my home, and we will always read the scriptures in my home. The tone and volume of his words hurt his daughter, and with her scriptures in hand, she left the family circle, ran to her bedroom, and slammed the door. So goes on, uh, I won't read every word here, but the, this father feels bad, goes and kneels in prayer, and the Lord prompts him to go and say sorry. So he finally listens to the prompting, and he goes up and knocks on his daughter's door. She doesn't open, but he kind of goes in, and he goes down and kneels next to her on the bed and says, I'm really sorry, I apologize for what I did. I didn't mean to hurt you. And then it says, And then from the mouth of a child came the lesson that the Lord wanted to teach him. She, the daughter, stopped crying, and after a brief silence, she took her scriptures into her hands and started to look up some verses. And when she found what she wanted to read, she started reading, For the natural man is an enemy to God, and has been from the fall of Adam, and will be forever and ever, unless he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit. Putteth off the natural man, becometh a saint through the atonement of Christ the Lord, and becometh as a child, submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him, even as a child does submit to his father. While he was still kneeling next to her bed, humility overcame him as he thought to himself, that scripture was written for me. My daughter has taught me a great lesson. Then she turned her eyes to him and said, I am sorry, I am sorry, daddy. At that very moment, the father realized she did not read that verse to apply that scripture to him, but she read it applying it to herself. He opened his arms and embraced her. Love and harmony had been restored in this sweet moment of reconciliation born of the word of God and the Holy Ghost. So the response of this uh, teenage girl, I think, is just so powerful and and very much in contrast with how Laman Laman and Lemuel respond to the admonitions of the Lord, that she was so humble that she listened and let the Spirit touch her heart and see how she needed to change that even though she very easily could have rubbed that scripture in her father's face for his response, she applied it to herself in humility. Um, and so just as we feel those promptings and impressions from the Lord of changes that we need to make, and whether those come from uh, a parent or a family member, a spouse, a church leader, that when we receive those admonitions, that we respond in humility 
with Christ-like attributes and willingness to change and accept um, the counsel rather than being angry as Laman and Lemuel responded. So, all right. So let's let's start into the meat of chapter four, which is um, Nephi's psalm. So first is the uh, verse fifteen. Nephi says, "Upon these I write." The things of my soul, many of the scriptures are engraven upon the plates of brass. For my soul delighteth in the scriptures, and my heart pondereth them, and writeth them for the learning and profit of my children. So first of all, this idea of pondering on the scriptures, you may remember several years ago, Brother Durant gave a, a talk called about ponderizing, taking a verse and thinking about it each week. For a while, our family did really, really well with that. And we've struggled to, to you know continue with that, but I am committing myself to, to be better with that again. And it's powerful to think about a verse throughout the week and how it applies and just having that one verse to really focus on um, and thinking about what that can do over time. If you do that every week, um, to have 52 verses per year that you've really thought about and owned and internalized, um, that's a powerful thing to think about how that could um, help you. So um, okay, so let's talk about verses 16 through 35. So this is referred to as Nephi's Psalm. Okay, so a couple different things here um, where I have to do my good guess Joseph thing, um, where there's just some things here that are a little uh, too detailed to actually think that Joseph Smith could have come up with this on his own. So First of all is just the structure of the psalm, okay? Verses 16 through 35, you have um, in 16 and 17, you have this invocation where um, he kind of gets into things and says, oh, wretched man that I am, my heart sorrows because of my flesh, my soul grieveth because of my iniquities. And then verses 17 through 19, there's sort of this complaint structure, Um and I think I want to come back to that here in just a second because I think that's really important. Then there's the confession of trust in verses 20 through 30, and then a petition in 31 through 33, and a vow of praise or like a recommitment to covenant in verses 34 through 35. So the fact that this structure, if you go into Psalms 25 through 31 and look at those, you can see like very much the similarities there. But the fact that this structure is there, it, it's sorry, it's just not one of those things that Joseph Smith could have come up with on his own. Secondly, with this psalm, um, the name the Lord or Jehovah is said 10 times specifically. Um, and in Old Testament times, this is something that only happened on the Day of Atonement. You would say the name of the Lord 10 times. Um, and so this is really interesting because the structure here leads us to see that this is a, you know, Near Eastern, Middle Eastern text, uh, very biblical in nature, rather than something that a farm boy in New York could have come up with. So again, good guess, Joseph, way to, way to guess on that. So um, let's walk through um, this psalm. So first of all, in verses 17 through 19, like I relate to this so much, um, I think, um, and it 
is very directly correlated with Romans chapter 7. Paul has a nearly identical um, complaint or um, passage that he writes to the Romans. Um, and I think it's just like I um, feel this way all the time that I'm not as good as I should be. And it's an important thing to be able to say, I want to be better and I want to change, but to not get to the point where you are shaming yourself. Um, because, you know, President Collister, Elder Collister said, said this in his book, The Infinite Atonement. He said, Nephi's life was one of devotion and obedience, yet he was ever more conscious of the distance still to be traveled for perfection. The more spiritual an individual becomes, the more sensitive he becomes to his imperfections. The better he becomes, the worse he realizes he was. And that last part is really interesting. The more sensitive he becomes to his, the more spiritual an individual becomes, the more sensitive he becomes to his imperfections. The better he becomes, the worse he realizes he was. We recognize the distance between ourselves and the Savior and how much greater he truly is than us. Um, and I think, too, that it's important that we recognize this truth from Elder Joaquin Costa said this. He said, sometimes we may think I need to fix my life before I come to Jesus. But the truth is that we come to Jesus to fix our lives through him. We don't come to Jesus because we are perfect. We come to him because we are flawed and in him we can be perfected. And it reminds me of Elder Renlund where he calls the church a hospital. Um, we all come because we're sick in some way and we need the, the master physician, the master healer. And so this whole beginning, you know, verses 16 through 19, I think the critical piece here is just this idea of honesty, of being open and honest about our challenges and not putting any errors, putting on any errors and, and pretending to be something better than we are and something that we're not, but recognizing our imperfections and being open about them. Um, I remember several years ago in a ward I was in in Syracuse where I was asked to give a fifth Sunday lesson. Incidentally, I said very little and felt impressed to call on several people in the ward who were in different life circumstances at the time to just share raw details about their life, including one of my sons who had uh, attempted suicide the previous year. And as each one of these people got up and just shared their raw, honest stories, um, it really brought a powerful spirit to the ward. It was youth and adults alike in a fifth Sunday lesson. And I think uh, whenever I've been in these situations where people are just truly honest uh, about their challenges, that the spirit is truly there. Um, I know I've gone to 12-step um, addiction recovery programs um, with some people close to me and, and sitting in those meetings and listening to the honesty uh, with which people come forward like their hearts are just so good and despite their imperfections and their mistakes and their sins their hearts are in the right place and I think that honesty is something that we could all learn from and benefit from with each other so I want to mention a couple things specifically about this one is this idea of complaining Hey, uh, 
and maybe we don't look at uh, verses 17 through 19 as a complaint, but it is. Uh, when you look at the text carefully, Nephi's, you know, complaining a little bit about, you know, why is this, uh, you know, temptations and sins, why do they so easily beset me? I'm groaning because of my sins. My heart sorrows, my soul grieves. Um, and this idea of complaining is really important because sometimes we think we, when we go to God that we have to um, talk to him in some certain way. But look at the example of uh, Mary and Martha in John chapter 11 when Lazarus dies, that they come to Jesus and said, hey, if you had been here, our brother wouldn't be dead right now. Like there's almost an accusation there, but certainly a complaint. They're certainly lodging a complaint. And the Savior responds like he can handle it. Uh, and I think we forget that, that when we pray, it's okay that we are honest with God and that we're real with him about our challenges. Um, I remember several years ago that my wife was going through a particularly challenging time and we had this conversation about, about this and that's something that she's uh, held on to because she had a powerful experience when she went to God and was just really honest about how she was feeling about things, the frustrations she was feeling for doing something that she knew that we had been impressed to do, but that had brought some serious challenges to our life. And um, so I think just not having this fear of being honest and real with God, even complaining, um, you know, and again, I'm not like telling us that we should all just complain to God all the time. But I think there's a, a time and a season and a place for that and to be honest and to let our feelings out. If you think about, if you had your children, you would want them to be honest and open up their feelings, whatever is going to lead to healing for them. And I think sometimes that's the, the thing that really brings healing is when we just open up with complete honesty. So um, reminds me of a of a song by Matthew West and go listen to it. Uh, it's called Truth Be Told. Uh, and he talks about being honest and he says, the truth be told, the truth is rarely told. We say, I'm fine, I'm fine, but I'm not, I'm broken. And I think if we all recognize that we are broken, it changes the way that we look at each other. I think we give each other grace um, and we can help each other by just being raw and honest about the realities of life and the challenges that we face. So, um, all right, I want to mention just a couple other things in the psalm. And it's beautiful. I would love to just read the whole thing, but I'll let you, you know, read this on your own. But a couple of things I want to point out here. Remember the context of um, Nephi and what's happening here. His brothers are wanting to kill him. You know, he's tried to do everything right and he's still experiencing these challenges. His dad just died. Like, there's some pretty serious challenges. And in verse 28, he gives this line that Elder Holland gave an entire talk on. And it's called, Give place no more for the enemy of my soul. That's the end of verse 28. And you would encourage everybody to watch or listen to that talk, but to think about how do we give place no more for the enemy of our soul? How do we give place no more for Satan? And some of the things that Elder Holland teaches there would include thinking of loved ones and, and thinking of what it would do to them if we do make mistakes, just kind of processing things before we make a decision um, so that we're not giving place for the enemy of our soul. 
Um, and then I also wanted to touch on verse 30. And throughout the 30 through 35, this um, title or name of Jesus is given the rock of my salvation. And verse 30, Nephi says, Rejoice on my heart and cry unto the Lord and say, O Lord, I will praise thee forever. Yea, my soul will rejoice in thee, my God, and the rock of my salvation. What is it that about this title that would bring joy? Um, and I thought through things and I thought about the, it's an, a classic Christian hymn, Rock of Ages. And the words are just beautiful. And so I'm just going to read these words and like think about why would I rejoice in this title? So uh, I'm just going to read the first two verses. Rock of Ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. So this goes back to the, the discussion of grace and mercy, right? Mercy, avoiding deserved punishment, grace, receiving um, undeserved blessings. So the double cure here, save from wrath, receiving mercy, like avoiding the deserved punishment for our sins, and then make me pure, this grace that makes us better. Um, you know, we always hear, are you saved by grace? Well, yeah, for sure. But perhaps a more important question, or at least an equally important question is, are you changed by grace? Has his grace made you more pure? Have you let his grace work in you to change you into something better? Okay, and then the second verse, not the labors of my hands can fill all thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Uh, these words are just beautiful to me. No matter what we do, we cannot atone for our own sins and we cannot save ourselves. No labors of our own hands can fill the law's demands. Uh, we have to rely on Christ. He is truly the rock of our salvation. Um, and it goes right into verse 31 where Nephi says, redeem my soul, purchase me, you know, deliver me from enemies. And he says in verse 31, wilt thou make me that I may shake at the appearance of sin? And we're going to come back to that prayer in chapter five because of something that happens there that I think we don't look at the right way. Um, and then verse 33, just a reminder, the robe of thy righteousness. Remember what we talked about with the, the word for atonement, kafar, the covering and that idea of running to the sheik in the wilderness. He puts the robe around you and says, hey, you're mine, like you're protected. And here's Nephi running from his enemies, his brothers, and going to the Lord for that protection, for that coverage. Um, so I love thinking about it from Nephi's perspective there. And then verse 35 is a beautiful verse. I know that God will give liberally to him that asketh. Yea, my God will give me if I ask not amiss. I think we got to think about what does that mean? Ask not amiss. Okay, am I asking to serve my own desires and and passions and, grat and gratify my own um, personal desires? Or am I really saying not my, my will, but thine be done and letting the Lord take over and praying in the same way that the Savior prayed for God's will to be done? Um, and so I think this verse is, is kind of Nephi saying, I know that God will dot, 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 
therefore I will dot, 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 do this, right? And I think that we can apply that in a lot of different ways. I know that God will do this, therefore I am going to do this. I'm in this covenant relationship. I know God will fulfill his words um, and as I fulfill my own end of that covenant. So love thinking about those verses in this way. All right, let's finish up with chapter five. Let's uh, jump in here. Um, so in chapter five, um, right at the beginning here, Nephi is praying, crying much to the Lord because of the anger of his brethren. And the, the next verse, verse two, it's got to be frustrating for him, right? But behold, their anger did increase against me insomuch that they did seek to take away my life. So this idea that when we pray to God, that um, our prayers are not always going to be immediately answered, uh, and they're certainly not going to be answered in the way that we sometimes desire. It goes back to the idea of asking not amiss. Maybe we don't actually understand the will of God. And, and like what happens here is very interesting because Nephi ends up leaving. So just recognizing that prayer might end up taking us a different direction to answer that God has. And I, I want to call out here, Elder Bednar gives a talk. It's about tithing, but I think it's very relevant to this idea of receiving answers to prayer that are maybe different than we hoped for or expected. He says, sometimes we may ask God for success and he gives us physical and mental stamina. We might plead for prosperity and we receive enlarged perspective and increased patience, or we petition for growth and are blessed with the gift of grace. He may bestow upon us conviction and confidence as we strive to achieve worthy goals. And when we plead for relief from physical, mental, and spiritual difficulties, he may increase our resolve and resilience. So prayers are not always answered in the way we want them to. But again, just putting our trust in the Lord and recognizing that he sees the end from the beginning and that the answers to those prayers are going to be in our best benefit. Okay, so... I want to kind of skip around here. So they try to kill Nephi, um, verses 3 and 4. And so then the Lord warns Nephi in verse 5 to take the people. And it's really kind of an, an, some interesting verses here. I want to read this. It came to pass that the Lord did warn me. First of all, if we're doing the things that the Lord has asked us to do, he will warn us as we um, have danger. And you can think about times in your life um, when you've had those warnings and when you've uh, been stopped from doing something that would have been damaging. Um, the Lord had warned me that I, Nephi, should depart from them and flee into the wilderness and all those who would go with me. Wherefore, it came to pass that I, Nephi, did take my family and also Zorman and his family and Sam, my elder brother and his family and Jacob and Joseph, my younger brethren and also my sisters and all those who would go with me. And all those who would go with me were those who believed in the warnings and revelations of God. Wherefore, they did hearken unto my words. And we did take our tents and whatsoever things were possible for us and did journey in the wilderness for the space of many days. And after we had journeyed for the space of many days, we did pitch our tents. So a couple of things there that set up the context. First of all, as we get into this, and you'll see at the very end of the chapter when Nephi says, 40 years had passed away and we had already had wars and contentions with our brethren. Okay, with how small the group was, even, you know, if nobody passed away, like, there's no way they could have had wars and contentions and still been around. So um, we're going to see evidence throughout the text that they probably joined with people that were already there. Um, so I think that's really important to 
think about, especially as we get to some other stuff later in chapter five. Um, but what I want to talk through here is this idea. I'm going to skip down, like I said, skipping around a little bit here to verse 27. Um, actually, take it back. I'm going to end with that. Let's, let's get into um, kind of the promise and the curse that the Lord has for um, Laman and Lemuel and their followers. So we're going to skip down to verse 20. So um, they try to take away Nephi's life. Wherefore, verse 20, the word of the Lord was fulfilled, which he spake unto me, saying that inasmuch as they will not hearken unto thy words, they shall be cut off from the presence of the Lord. And behold, they were cut off from his presence. Really important to notice the sequence here. Verse 21, and he had caused the cursing. So what is the curse? The curse is being cut off from the presence of the Lord, being separated from his presence. To come upon them, yea, even a sore cursing because of their iniquity. For behold, pay attention to the words here. They had hardened their hearts against him. Okay, symbolic language. That they had become like unto a flint. Symbolic language. Wherefore, as they were white, has to be symbolic language here because they most certainly were not white and exceedingly fair and delightsome as in white skinned, I should say, and exceedingly fair and delightsome that they might not be enticing unto my people. The Lord God did cause a skin of blackness to come upon them. So we have this symbolic language and that, but then we get to this skin thing and we immediately try to take it literally and say, Oh, the, it was skin pigmentation. They, their skin color was changed. Now, I know that that people will probably disagree with um, the way I'm looking at this here. But I think if you look at the footnotes, the cross references, you know, Second Nephi chapter 30, verse 6, think about um, other things the Lord said in the Book of Mormon, such as Second Nephi 26, 33, recognize that the cursing was being cut off from the presence of the Lord. And thinking about this symbolic language, in my view here, this is talking about the countenance of the people who reject uh, the Lord. Okay, so this idea of blackness is more having to do with a countenance from being separated from the spirit than it is with some sort of skin pigmentation. And there's multiple reasons for this. One is, um, you know, if you look at this, uh, it's not like a, a super likely situation that all of a sudden their skin color just changed, that this actually has to do with skin pigmentation. And when we have all this symbolic language, it doesn't just all of a sudden go literal. Secondly, you have this idea later on in the Book of Mormon where um, <clears throat> Moroni has seeks for a Lamanite among his people to go um, to you know, bring wine to a group of Lamanites and we have to think like, okay, if it was a skin color, skin pigmentation thing, you wouldn't have to look very far. Uh, and second of all, the other, the Lamanites, when this group walks up, would have noticed um, that the others that were with this one Lamanite, quote unquote, um, would have been a different skin color, right? So there's, I think there's some evidence from the text that would indicate that this isn't related to skin pigmentation. Um, which I think is kind of important because we um, tend to look at it that way. So um, I think that uh, with this whole idea of the curse, um, the other reason why I think it's um, 
sort of a, a symbolic thing rather than skin pigmentation is when you look at other examples like um, in Isaiah where he talks about the show of their countenance does, uh, doth witness against them. Right? Like this idea um, of, of the countenance is supported by you know, other things that church leaders have said. So um, I'm going to share this uh, from Spencer Jones. It's a, from an Enzyme article, and it says this, At times, consequences of sin may appear to be very subtle to the sinner, we may even convince ourselves that no one will be able to detect our sins and that they are well concealed. But always to our Heavenly Father and often to spiritually sensitive leaders, parents, and friends, our glims are gl sins are glaringly apparent. While attending a youth fireside with Elder Richard G. Scott, I noticed five youths scattered among the congregation whose countenances or body language almost screamed that something was spiritually amiss in their lives. After the meeting, when I mentioned the five youths to Elder Scott, he simply replied, there were eight. So this idea um, of a countenance, a change in countenance because of uh, rebellion against God, because of being in a sinful condition, I think is a much more likely scenario uh, than to um, really have a literal skin pigmentation change. So um, just... Two cents there that I think is important to think about. And if again, if you get into the footnotes here and you get into the language in the Bible, um, thinking about, you know, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow, they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. You hear, you know, hear this idea of faces that are black uh, with anger. You know, there's different things uh, all throughout the scriptures that I think are supporting of this symbolic language. So, just a couple, two cents to kind of think about that. All right. <clears throat> Last thing to finish off uh, on a more positive note here. Uh, verse 27. And it came to pass that we, Nephi and his people, lived after the manner of happiness. So 2 Nephi 5 really is a recipe for happiness. Okay. So um, when we go, if we go back and look sort of at verse 27, then we go back and we can find evidence throughout the chapter of, okay, what does it mean to live after the manner of happiness? First of all, verse nine, all those who are with me did take upon them to call themselves the people of Nephi. Again, Nephi is a type of Christ here. Living after the manner of happiness is taking upon yourself the name of Jesus Christ. Verse 10, living after the manner of happiness is keeping the commandments. Uh, verse 11, having the spirit with us is living after the manner of happiness. Um, having gardens and animals, like obviously to some extent we can't all do all those things, but um, we can find joy in doing those things and live after the manner of happiness in those ways. Um, I know for me that uh, the garden stuff is really big for me. I love, uh, I have peach trees and some berries and those are it brings me a lot of joy to be able to go out and and collect the fruits of our labors and watch my kids eat them. Like it's just a lot of fun for me and brings me a lot of happiness. Uh, then verse twelve, scriptures. The scriptures help us to live after the manner of happiness, involving the scriptures in our lives, being focused on those, and also the liahona, or that could be you know the Holy Ghost, patriarchal blessings. You know, those things, involving those things in our lives help us to live after the manner of happiness. And then in verse 13, to uh, talking about prosperity here. And I think this is interesting because 
Um, Heber J. Grant said, when I say prosperity, I'm not thinking of it in terms of dollars and cents alone. But what I count as real prosperity is the one thing of all others that is of great value to every man and woman living is the growth and knowledge of God and in a testimony and in the power to live the gospel and to inspire our families to do the same. That is prosperity of the truest kind. And then the idea of multiplying, having kids, that brings us joy. Um, and there's a story that was told in, in General Conference in October 1998, where, um, here's the story, Sister Yagiko Siki, I have no idea how to say that, experienced part of this precious promise. She writes, my family and I were spending a day at the Japan Alps National Park. I was pregnant with our fourth child and was feeling rather tired. So I lay down under the trees. I began thinking about our financial problems. My heart became overwhelmed and I burst into tears. Lord, we are full tithe payers. We have sacrificed so much. When will the windows of heaven open unto us and our burdens be lightened? I prayed with all my heart. Then I turned to watch my husband and children playing and laughing together. Suddenly the Spirit testified to me that my blessings were abundant and that my family was the greatest blessing Heavenly Father could give me. So love thinking about prosperity in that sense. Okay, other things uh, about living after the man of happiness, being prepared in verse 14, um, working, you can find joy in work, the temple in verse 16, um, again, verse 17, working. And I, I think if we really read through this and are really careful in our observations of this, we will find that this is really a recipe to have a happy and joyful life and to have the Lord with us. Uh, and to really enjoy his blessings and see his goodness and see his grace in our lives.